Welcome to The More the Merrier with Donna G. I've been away for a while, so to my regular listeners, I have missed you. Hope you have missed me. To new listeners who are tuning in for the first time, this is The More the Merrier with Donna G. And this show focuses on film and theater coverage and the arts at large. I'm also a huge lover of the Toronto Public Library, and from time to time, I share my audiobook selections with you. Full disclosure, these books I have not read. I've just listened to the samples, and the samples are what you will get when you go to the Toronto Public Library, torontopubliclibrary.ca, and sort by audiobooks. You will hear samples of the books, and you can choose by subject, by author. You can do it randomly, and um, as I did today, actually, um, just a random search um, for some Canadian writers. This is a mixed bag that you'll be hearing um, today. I tend to choose my audiobooks um, by narrator um, because some books um, are great as audiobooks and some books personally I find are better as you know a paper book or maybe on your Kobo and that is strictly personal 
I have a bias towards a certain type of voice that I connect to, and the same will be true to you uh, when you explore audiobooks. Um, and it's free. Uh, I use the Libby app to download my books. I listen um, on my iPad or I listen on my Kobo, so, or sometimes I read on my phone using the Libby app. But all the instructions are there for you to uh, download um, your books. And the Toronto Public Library has been experiencing. Um, they experienced a cyber attack in November. It is still ongoing, but Libby is still available, as are many things at the Toronto Public Library. So do check the site to see um, what is available to you. The branches are, of course, open, but all information, torontopubliclibrary.ca. So let's get the show started. I hope you like my selections, and you can let me know by visiting my socials. You can reach me, www.ciut.fm, click on The More The Merrier, Sundays 1 to 2 p.m. Or if you like social media, at TMTM with Donna G on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm also now on Blue Sky, but that's developing. And from my Instagram, you can also check out the podcast if you've missed any shows. I'm on various platforms, The More the Merrier with Donna G, Spotify, Amazon, and a few others as well. Red Circle is my host. A heads up, the content for this show is geared towards a mature audience for language and subject matter, so listener discretion is advised. Tatooine, written by Jean-Christophe Réal, narrated by Adam Kenneth Wilson. Part 1 The days are long. By the end of my first shift, I considered committing seppuku between the hunting magazines and the Morisi tourism guides. But I didn't. I've never had such a boring summer job. I never thought I'd get hired at a tourist office, but unfortunately for me, I was the only applicant. Nobody ever comes in. I arrange the brochures. I sweep the floor. I stare at the ceiling. Every now and again, Charles, the guy who works in the park, drops by for a chat. I can talk to him about Star Wars and my obsession with the planet Tatooine. I think about my life. Not very original, I know. Everyone thinks about their life. I wonder what the hell I'm doing here. I've been learning Mandarin for the past couple of years. I watch Chinese TV every night. I started really getting into Asia after I saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon with Chow Yun-Fat. Now that I think about it, it's ridiculous to want to go work in Asia just because of a movie. I'd like to be an interpreter over there. Whatever. I'm 31. I don't have a girlfriend. I've never really had a girlfriend. Sure, I've kissed a few girls. And a guy once, too. He was a really good kisser. No, that's not true. I had a girlfriend for two years. I even vacationed down south with her and her family once. I haven't been in love much. Once, maybe. And it wasn't with the girl I went on holiday with. 
I've fallen head over heels for thousands of glances, thousands of smiles, thousands of chins. I've had twinges of regret, disappointment, thoughts of death. Thoughts of death because I'll never be able to know everyone. Because I'll never be able to kiss everyone. I often feel like a ghost. A ghost who's learning Mandarin. A ghost who works in a tourist office. Ooh. Where's Trois-Rivières? Trois-Rivières is that way. Ooh. I try to find myself somewhere. I flick through the Gaspésie tourism guide. There I am. I'm the hole in Perse Rock. It's sunny today. Blue sky, no clouds, no soul, no nothing. It's 9.30 in the morning, and the heat is enough to burn your balls off. The air conditioning's not working. I open all the windows, but it's like being in a greenhouse. I'm a fucking Mandarin-speaking plant. I talked about Chewbacca with Charles, but he went off to mow the grass as soon as he saw a guy walk into the office. A man about 50, wearing a bike helmet. I hate cyclists. They're always happy. He smiled when he saw me. Phew, I just rode 50 clicks. I replied, way to go. That's, that must be long. I didn't know what else to say. I have 50 clicks of skin wrapped around my heart. I don't feel much. I watch the flies buzzing around the office. There are tons of them. I try to kill them all with my cap. It takes me an hour to kill five flies. Where do flies go when they die? I picture ghost flies flitting around my head. I spot a cute girl walking up to the glass doors of the tourist office. There's something wrong with her. She's limping. I like girls who got something wrong with them. She walks past my desk and heads to the washroom. She disappears. Another girl, another sorrow. It's incredible. Girls are like butterflies. They flutter. They dance when they walk. They appear like magic. They've barely come near me in months. I'm a very ugly flower, and the days are long. I've got a big fat face. My face has gotten fatter. I've got fat cheeks. I try not to smile in photos, otherwise I look like I weigh about 300 pounds. A 300-pound flower. I look a little slimmer in the right pants. If my heart wore pants, it wouldn't even exist. The sunlight's done a 180 in the office. In the morning, the light's the right way up. A dream of a woman. Written and narrated by Casey Platt. Dedication. For Sarah B. Miss you. Always. And for Juanita. Sorry about the rough parts. Epigraph. Why do they say ghosts are cold? Mine are warm. A breath dampening your cheek. A voice when you thought you were alone. Julie Bunton, Marlena. Temporarily could last a long time. Alison Stein rode out of winter. Hazel and Christopher. One. When Hazel grew up and moved out of the prairies, 
She would learn from movies and the news that small towns were supposed to be poor and dying. But Hazel never thought of her unhappy childhood as horrific, and Christopher's family was not only happy, but rich. They lived in a cul-de-sac next to a canola field, in a house with a wide yard surrounded by poplars. They were always renovating their basement. If you had pressed Hazel as a child, she maybe could have admitted she was jealous. In a glossily submerged way, maybe. Mostly, in that time, she just loved being Christopher's best friend. When they first touched each other, they were eight, sleeping in an old inner room without windows in the basement. They were hyper and laughing hard, and then her eyes were close to the freckles on his shoulders. They talked about gayness exactly once, just after Hazel and her mom moved across the province. They were on the phone and about to start high school. Hazel was in a stage of proto-transness, a stage in which she was terrified of herself and had no idea why. She brought it up this way. What do you think about gay people? Are they okay or should they be killed? I don't know. They should probably be killed, Christopher said. Okay. They talked on the phone a lot after Hazel moved away. She'd always wondered if Christopher remembered that. It would have been unusual for two boys. Boys. Her mom let her call him for 20 minutes on the weekend. Long distance. Hazel would say, But you talk to your boyfriend every night for hours. And Hazel's mom, forever calm, would respond, This will make more sense to you as an adult. It did make sense to Hazel now, if not in the way her mother probably imagined. Christopher was always happy to talk. He didn't have the same emotional needs as Hazel back then, and even as a young teenager, Hazel recognized that. But he always made time for her. He did. Hazel last saw Christopher when she was 20. Home from out west, knowing her boy days were numbered, as were the reasons to come back to this part of the world. She and her mom were had her aunts for Christmas, and Hazel walked from the other end of town in the snow, the creak of her boots the only sound in the pale afternoon sunset. She walked in the door of Christopher's house, and no one was on the first floor. She went down to the basement, noticed a bedroom off to the side, with power tools everywhere and half-installed hardwood floors. In the rec room, Christopher and a couple other guys were watching The Departed with a two-four of Bud. There was a particular kind of American, Hazel had learned since, who was bummed to know that Canadians drank Bud. One of the guys said he wanted more beer, but hated the girl who worked at the vendor. Hazel had felt herself teetering on an edge then, between a fear of how volatile it might be to continue knowing these boys, and a distant sadness at the knowledge that she might never see these stupid fuckers again. Funnily enough, there had been a trans guy in town, her age, who'd come out around a year prior. He'd announced himself, then right away skipped off to the city. Hazel brought up his name like a test, like hazarding an exhibition round. So you guys hear about, <laughs> oh God, the dyke? And everyone laughed. I have no problem with gay people, Christopher said. But gender reassignment. A visible shiver came over him, something real and revulsive. 
He shook his head like he'd stomped on something crawly and was trying to forget about it. When the two four ran out, they all went to a park. If you're just tuning in, this is The More the Merrier with Donna G. The focus of today's show is the Toronto Public Library's offerings of audiobooks by Canadian authors or and or readers. We started the show, actually I started the show with some music, um, Everybody, the track by Black Sam, B-L-A-X-A-M, and um, if you're a crate digger, maybe you can find the CD, which I have in, in my library, the CD's called Kiss My Afro, and that's from several decades ago, a couple of decades at least ago. Um, then... Audiobook-wise, I started with Tatooine by Jean-Christophe Réel, read by Adam Kenneth. And Jean-Christophe spells his name J-E-A-N hyphen C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E. The last name Réel is spelled R-E-H-E-L. And this book can be borrowed from the Toronto Public Library using your library card and the Libby app. Oh, I should point out that the Libby app may be available with your local library as well. So do check that out um, in your system. I downloaded the app from the Google Play site, but also it's available, a connection is available from the Toronto Public Library as well. After that, you heard A Dream Woman, read by the author, who is Casey Plett, C-A-S-E-Y-P-L-E-T-T. Now, Tatooine, I forgot to mention, is a seven-hour listen, and A Dream Woman is a nine-hour listen. And when you uh, listen to these audiobooks, you can bookmark so you don't lose your place. Um, you can time it so that you can listen to a chapter at a time or 15 minutes or half an hour or an hour, whatever you have available um, time to listen. So we're going to move on now to two audiobooks, two more audiobooks, and you're going to hear Chink Star by John Chan Simpson. And this is read by Vincent Tran. Now, John spells his name J-O-N. So John Chan, C-H-A-N, Simpson, S-I-M-P-S-O-N. And the narrator is Vincent Tran, V-I-N-S-O-N, Tran, T-R-A-N. After that, you'll hear Chameleon Man, K-A-M-E-L-E-O-N, Man, M-A-N, by Kim Barry Brunhuber, and this is read by Kim himself. K-I-M-B-E-R-R-Y-B-R-U-N-H-U-B-E-R, Brunhuber. And that is a 10-hour listen, and Chinkster is a 7-hour listen. Now, the samples that I've been playing sometimes end abruptly. This will be your indication as to whether or not you want to find out more about the book, um, and that's why the samples are there. I won't be reading 
any of the descriptions that are listed on the Toronto Public website that go with these audiobooks. I just want the show to flow. And if you're interested, you'll seek out the information. And if you're not, you won't. So hopefully there'll be a couple of books in this lineup that will appeal to you as they do to me. I'm always interested in more books than I can listen to in my lifetime or even hold on my bookshelf. These loans can be borrowed for up to 21 days. You can also place a hold. And a good thing is if your hold comes in and you're not ready to read it or listen to it, you can delay it and you'll be next in line. But all of this information is available at torontopubliclibrary.ca or check out your own public library system um, that uses the Libby app or has audiobooks available for you to listen. Here now is Chinkster and Chameleon Man. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G on CIUT 89.5 FM. Oh, a reminder that these samples are geared towards a mature audience, so listener discretion is advised. Chinkstar by John Chan Simpson. This is a Coach House Books audiobook narrated by Vincent Tran. For Mom and Dad, I owe you guys pretty much everything. One. The text. In the dead grass and dusk, we waited. Stretched out on the hoods of our parents' cars, we sipped warm beer and contemplated sinking the radios, turning up the top 40 brain trash to drown out our disappointment. Not a good look if the man of the night actually managed to show. If he fixed the tire on his dropkit Honda, say, or slayed that final O, or just sobered up enough to remember that this was supposed to be his grand fucking finale as a small-town superstar. Everything was about to change. Less than 48 hours got to be taking the stage in Van City, owning an audience meant for some all-hype, no-talent, new-money rapper, spitting next-level truths that'd have A&R scrapping from coast to coast. Eating some paper and drop an album that the world didn't even know it had been waiting for. All with game and swag to spare. This was the edge. The almost there. And we knew it. We'd been waiting a long-ass time to where it was feeling like any other Friday night of a red deer summer. Mosquitoes were getting secondhand fucked on the whiskey in our systems, kamikaze looping and crashing from our spot just past the semicircle of cars. Ollie and I watched as the deep crowd of fans started doing likewise. Some of the eager ones who timed their drunk beak for an hour and a half ago were already burning out in puddles of mom's turkey meatloaf. Still, they had hope. The kids gathered out there in the bush somewhere between Township Road 382 and the United States of MTV. This man was God. Chai Rhyme, Nip Hop, Zippa Flow, Slanty, John Dell, Rice Wrap, Chinksta. All planets in a system revolving around its rising sun, King Kwong, my brother. Spoke for itself, but me and him were nothing alike. We'd taken opposite life trajectories. I was a fat kid, stretched and got skinny. He was skinny, flexed and got fat. Under the clothes and tattoos, through the talk, walk, and ball grabbing, could maybe confuse us. Same brown eyes as mom. That's it. Dick Face understood how important this bush party was. Had to. Even I got it. 
decided to haul my ass out to that lost patch of dirt when most times I did everything I could to avoid the dude's crapmosphere. This wasn't easy considering your average Red Deer high schooler knew more about King Kwong than global warming or Obama, learning about America's first black president guy only after Googling the great ape's lyrics. Teachers capitalized, got traction couching lessons in Kwong land like a Lincoln full of haters doing X kilometers an hour down Ross Street is trying to skip getting popped by our boy Killer Kwong, whose Nitro Civic does Y kilometers an hour and led from his tech spits at 900 meters per second. It was whatever, though, and Mr. Parker knew it. He didn't need math to work the oil rigs. But what got me was that no one ever asked if I minded seeing my family name up there on the board, outlined in chalk, if it fucking killed me that everything these days seemed to trickle down to me via my asshole brother. Had tons of reasons to stay home, and bullshit was a big one, no doubt. Rosalind Gray was another. Like a pantheress. Chances were good Roz was somewhere in the crowd, selling maybe. Maybe an eye out for the one guy she couldn't have, or couldn't have her, more like. The no-game half-chai with the one friend. Loner van and nothing to do Friday who she liked to watch squirm. And I was squirming. Roz's brother wasn't exactly supportive of our being in like. Had dangled me off the roof of the gym for getting caught on the wrong end of her smile. That was seventh grade. It had been non-stop torture for five years since. Hallway shovings and hot chili facials in the calf and bathroom cornerings that went the other side of creepy, even by coke-raging alpha male cowboy standards. Girl was going to get me killed, I was sure. How could I stay home? She was hot to make me sweat and cool to where it scared me, way past the dime. I had those freckles and a kid never had a chance. I didn't know which way I'd run when I finally spotted her. Yeah, man, Allie said. I don't think Guy's coming. He stood up from the hood, balancing an empty on his forehead and shuffling around in the dust. It's part of the show just to get people pumped. He'll be here. Chameleon Man. A novel by Kim Barry Brunhuber. Read by the author. Chapter One. The inside of the tent is a whirlwind of stockings, nubile limbs, breasts of all kinds. No time to look, a minute and a half to change. Otto, on his way out, turns for one last glance, but the mirror's full of Sandor in his conical top hat. Am I tucked? Let me, one of the models behind him says. He pretends to tuck it, pulls Otto's shirt out even farther. Not that. Otto has a chance of winning, but it's the last routine, and why take any chances? Everyone else is still trying to fit into their bridal gowns or tuxedos, too big or too small, because there aren't any rehearsals for shows like this. Tyroon, our dresser, a young, balding Pakistani with big hoop earrings in both ears, flits among us, adjusting collars, brushing off lint, telling each of us to call him Tyrone. I fumble with my suspenders, can't figure them out, search for my shoes instead. Before the show, all the clothes were neatly arranged on racks, our names and the order of each outfit printed in marker on cardboard tags. Now, after three changes, tags litter the floor, shoes are in the wrong boxes, outfits are mixed up and inside out. Two square feet of space each in which to maneuver, 
one chair for every three models where we toss our used outfits. Tyrone told us to hang everything up after each change so the clothes wouldn't be wrinkled for tomorrow's show, but now even he realizes he was dreaming. Discarded clothes hit the ground like spent cartridges. Is it me? Cindy asks. She's crouching next to me, holding one pump in her mouth while she tries to jam the other size six onto her perfect size eight. I zip her, trying not to stare. The jig is up, she says in a stage whisper. I nod knowingly, though I think she means the fix is in. We'd both suspected it since we first saw the lineup and which outfits were assigned to whom. I hear Manson likes pink. I whisper back, but she's heard enough about Chelsea Manson to know I'm making it up. I look like a fucking flamingo, she hisses, pointing with a mouthful of shoe at her dress and a horrible pink chiffon. And check that out, she adds, waving the shoe at Zoe. In a full-length sable Cartier dress, Zoe, one of the newer girls from Bramalee, looks as good as she ever will with that nose. Don't sweat it, I say. You're still the bee's knees, baby. I'm trying to be helpful, though I don't know what the bee's knees are or if that's even good. Thanks, but I don't care anymore, she says, but I know she does. This is all bullshit anyway. Zipped and shod, Cindy swishes out of the tent, her strides already timed to the music outside, a brave soldier at the Gallipoli of fashion which is, of course, a shame, because she's one of the few among us who actually has a chance to win. Most of the other models here are just attractive, one better than good-looking, but one less than pretty. In this town, to say that you're dating a model is more often than not an admission of failure. Models here would never turn your head at a supermarket or inspire you to push up on the dance floor. Most of the models in Nepean are the girls in your class who sit in aisle seats and never lend their notes or farmers' daughters, extra large thanks to country air and potato fritters, grown too big to eat, like prize-winning corn stalks, reluctantly rounded up in trucks and sold to one of the two modeling agencies in the city, Bramley Talent or DBMI. And Cindy and I both work for the wrong one. Cindy, rumor has it, was iced out of Bramley for going down on the director's husband after a show. Then again, rumor has it that I go both ways. Stacy, shouldn't you be on already? Tyrone says, still fussing with Sandor's hat. I peep through a slit in the tent. Autumn, on the ramp, seems nervous, keeps glancing back toward the tent, expecting the cavalry, but my dress shirt's still on its hanger. Damn. I struggle to undo buttons, zip up zippers, snap off hooks. Nothing's worse than being out there too long. It's a small runway, about 12 feet long, shaped like a lowercase t. Curated by the people, for the people. CIUT 89.5 FM is the sound of your city.
CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G, featuring audiobook samples from the Toronto Public Library using the Libby app. Listener discretion is advised. God Loves Hair, written and narrated by Vivek Shreya. This is a Bespeak Editions audiobook. Dedication for the boy who is almost lost. Forward. It has been 10 years since Vivek Shreya published her groundbreaking and innovative book, God Loves Hair. 
it is as relevant, necessary, and remarkable now as it was when she first refused refusal and ensured other brown, queer, struggling kids would find a home in these pages. Filling the curves of every letter in each word after carefully curated word, Shreya manages to give us the entirety of her early universe in the succinct poetic language that has cemented her place in our literary landscape, a place that enjoys the full view afforded to those who have climbed to the top. In fact, she has gone beyond us, but as is her way, she waits patiently for us to catch up, beckoning us to follow along a path only she can discern, but from which it is impossible to wander. I can hear her auntie's bangles and smell her mother's perfume as she waves us on. Godless Hair is the book every child should know exists, that every person should read, but not too fast though that compulsion is almost impossible to resist. It is one of those rare offerings that circles many issues, from bullying to shame, self-preservation to family history, all from inside the very eye of the storm that is adolescence. Reading Godless Hair is a gift that challenges as it soothes, bringing the two extremes to the reader within the rhythm of a hymn. Both Shreya's generous style and sharp precision are captured in every note, in each line. They say loving yourself is an act of rebellion, so then the small, beautiful stories in this collection become a manifesto to that movement. Self-love at all costs, under any weight. From the pleasant ache of the minute change found in tweezing, to the shattering, deep understanding discoverable in the earthly presence of God, this book takes us through the expansive geography of devotion to an ever-growing self. God is my first love. God is my first best friend. God is my first broken heart. Only a unique and powerful voice speaking from the depth of watching ancestors, can lead us through beauty while paying equal mind to the shadows it casts. We are awestruck by the young protagonist's close relationship with a higher power, and at the same time bear witness while he changes after gym class, making his body as small as he can in the corner of the locker room. We ache to feel the kind of peace that descends when the ohm unravels on Sundays like a dropped spool of ribbon and quake at the burn and tightness of being physically attacked in school hallways. How can such extremes coexist in one life? And how could they possibly quiet down long enough for Shreya to hear the words that would hold them? This is the magic of Vivek Shreya. She has found a way to hold all the antithetical facets of life and the simple geometry of letters made into words, then crafted into stories that sing and weep and honor and celebrate all at the same time. And then she goes even further, enabling us to join her in the songs made equally of mourning and defiance. Even if she is, always, just a little bit ahead of us. 
After all, isn't that the job of a storyteller, of a true artist? To break the ground and smooth the path so that no matter how many shadows fall in the way, we are always aware of the beauty, the achingly generous and enormously powerful beauty just up ahead. Vivek, I would follow you anywhere. Chi miigwech for singing us home every single time. Cherie Dimaline. Penguin Random House Canada presents Empire of Wild by Cherie Dimaline. Read for you by Michelle St. John. We went to the best motels, which is like sleeping in unfinished novels. We slept soundly amongst the teak and twill and plaid and brass. We left the window open, just a crack. Paul Vermeersch Motel. Just shut up, you, and listen. My mare, Edna Duzon, 1913-2006. Prologue, A New Hunt. Old medicine has a way of being remembered, of haunting the land where it was laid. People are forgetful. Medicine is not. The town of Arkand was a church, a school, a convenience store, a bootlegger, and a crowd of stooped houses, leaning like old men trying to hear a conversation over a graveyard of Grenier's and Trudeau's. Sundays were for God, though most people prayed out on the lake, casting Hail Marys with their fishing lines into the green water, yelling to the sky when they didn't get lucky, or when they did. Parties were held in kitchens. Euchre was a sport, and fiddles made the only sound worth dancing to. Any other music was just background noise for storytelling and beer drinking and flirting, or for providing the cadence for fight choreography when you just had to beat the shit out of your cousin. The people who lived in Arkhand were brought from another place, moved off Drummond Island when it was handed over to the United States in 1828. They were half-breeds, the children of French voyageurs and First Nations mothers and Métis people who had journeyed from Manitoba. The new colonial authorities wanted the land, but not the Indians. So the people were bundled onto ships with their second-hand fiddles and worn soft boots. They landed on the rolling white sands of the Georgian Bay and set up their new homes across from the established town that wouldn't welcome them. At first they were fine on their own already flush with blacksmiths and hunters, fishermen, and a hundred small children to toss stones into Lake Huron. If they had known then how each square inch would have to be guarded, how each grain of sand needed to be held tight, perhaps they would have stacked the rocks instead of gifting them to the lake. Over the years, without treaty and without wealth, the half-breeds were moved away from the shorelines where million-dollar cottages were built in a flurry of hammers on lumber, so many at one time it was as if the shore was standing to an ovation. Family by family, the community was pushed up the road. Catholic by habit, they prayed on their knees for the displacement to stop, for the Jesus to step in and draw a line between the half-breeds and the new people. 
Those among them who carried medicine also laid down coarse salt as protection against the movement. This salt came from the actual bones of one particular Red River family who drew their own boundaries when the hand of God did not reach down to do it for them. Eventually, inevitably, the shore belonged to the newcomers who put up boathouses and painted gazebos and built docks where sunburnt grandchildren would cannonball into June waters calling for someone to watch what they could do. And the half-breeds? They got the small settlement up a dirt road. They got our tent. Some of the people managed to hold on to the less desirable patches of waterfront, areas with no beach or too many lilies like the decaying fingers of a neglected woman pushing out of the muck. These were the older people who refused to head up the road to Arcand. They kept rickety docks where the fishermen tied their rusted boats in exchange for some of the catch. The heavily wooded acres that bloomed out from Arcan toward the highway and the smaller roads with hairpinned curves snaking down to the occupied shore, these areas, too, remained up for grabs. In any half-breed home, there were jars of coins and a wistful plan to buy back the land one acre at a time, if need be. On these lands, in both the occupied places and those left to grow wild, alongside the community and the dwindling wildlife, there lived another creature. I said earlier that I wasn't going to read the descriptions from the Toronto Public Library about these books. I'm going to make an exception for this one, uh, We Jane, a novel by Amy Wall. And I'm making that distinction because it concerns abortion. And I want to read the um, description that's listed on the site for you. A remarkable debut about intergenerational female relationships and resistance found in the unlikeliest of places. We, Jane, explores the precarity of rural existence and the essential nature of abortion. Searching for meaning in her Montreal life, Martha begins an intense friendship with an older woman, also from Newfoundland, who tells her a story about purpose, about a duty to fulfill. It's back home and it goes by the name of Jane. Martha travels back to a small community on the island with the older woman to continue the work of an underground movement in 60s Chicago abortion services performed by women, always referred to as Jane. She commits to learning how to continue this legacy and protect such essential knowledge. But the nobility of her task and the reality of small-town life compete, and personal fractures within their group begin to grow. We, Jane, probes the importance of care work by women for women, underscores the complexity of relationships in close circles, and beautifully captures the inevitable heartache of understanding home. Here now is an excerpt from We, Jane. We, Jane. A novel. Written by Amy Wall. Narrated by Rhiannon Morgan. Preface. Jane was driving east. Jane was driving east with a big, vague plan. 
They were drinking gas station coffee, eating pistachio nuts. They were talking grandiose. We, Jane, they thought. We, Jane, they started a sentence. We, Jane, they spoke manifesto. They, Jane, were still aspiring to the name, one that slips and slides, one from which the idea was they would do the work. But the thing was that, even then, even by the time they had made it onto the road, Martha was still thinking of her companion as Jane, and herself as just herself, always still scrabbling her way into that we, into that Jane, believing that to be distinct from the part of her that just wanted to crawl inside the other woman. Into she, Jane. But Jane was not just her. Jane was to be them. Jane, a great, shifting, multitudinous thing. Jane's mantra, we, Jane, are only just getting started. We, Jane, are just a matter of time. This is how they imagined it would go. Is Jane there? Can I speak to Jane? And Jane's back. Jane's a bay girl who's been up in the big world and come home out of it. Jane's got less to lose than ever. Jane had wanted to be a cyborg. She'd wanted to be above the body. But here we are. So, is Jane there? Can I speak to Jane? Jane burning into the parking lot. Jane with a pickup truck and the knowledge and the tools. Jane's number scrawled on the walls of every virtual bathroom stall. The first Jane had packed up shop. Jane's work, it was thought, was done. But really, Jane was always still just lying in wait, coiled, ready, like a fist you don't realize you've made. Jane had told Martha all her other ideas were no good, too didactic. Martha had been thinking herself an artist, and this so much raw material. Jane told her she was never going to make anything good if she was trying to convince people of something. Martha thought of all the ideas she'd been happily convinced of. How upfront were these agendas? She, of course, misremembered. She wasn't really sure. But what if it's funny? Martha asked. Then maybe, Jane said. But is that really your strong suit? It was only when Martha decided to write the great Canadian abortion novel that she'd started having bad dreams. She had been imagining herself diligently researching, spending long days in the library surrounded by stacks of books. She had been imagining the novel as a great moment, a breakthrough, even as she wasn't entirely sure of the revolutionary nature of anything she'd have to say on the matter. She was focused on the saying part, but she got bogged down in the research phase. Then she thought about comedy. She could do stand-up. This was the greatest untapped source of jokes she'd ever encountered. Why would nobody joke about it with her? They all shifted uncomfortably as they made laughing sounds. Martha just wanted to joke about it. Take the piss out of the whole thing. She did. She really did. She had examined her own urges the way a woman who's been to a handful of therapy sessions would. Just to make sure. But it really did all mostly strike her as absurd and strange. And funny. 
she probably couldn't get away with actual stand-up. But maybe it could be like performance art stand-up, Martha thought. Funny in an awkward, painful way. Google search. Art projects about abortion. Google search. Aborted pregnancy art. Google search. Abortion art. Don't look at the image results. A woman named Angie who live-tweeted her abortion. A woman named Emily who filmed hers. A YouTube clip in which... Thank you for tuning in to The More the Merrier with Donna G. Again, my contact information can be found at www.ciut.fm. Click on The More the Merrier, Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m. I'm happy to be back doing this show. I had to take an emergency leave, and I want to thank Ken Stower and the other volunteers at the station for filling in for me while I was away. I hope you enjoyed the focus of the audiobooks. I hope a couple of them will appeal to you. If not, please search out um, audiobooks for yourself using the Libby app and your library system if you don't belong to the Toronto Public Library. We heard from, during the show, we heard from Jean-Christophe Réel with Tatooine, A Dream Woman by Casey Plett, Chinkster by John Chan Simpson, Chameleon Man by Kim Barry Brunhuber, God Loves Hair by Vivek Shreya, and Empire of Wild by Cherie Dimeline. And we ended just now with We Jane by Amy Wall. Music on today's show was provided by Black Sam with Everybody, and then Nikki Lawrence with Dreamer. Ending the show now with Alan Hobbins and Chopin's Nocturne in D-flat major, opus 27, number 2. See you next week. Mm-hmm.